what kind of work do I want to be making if I'm going to make stuff for the next year and nobody buy it? What is going to make me absolutely happy? So I said that whenever I close my eyes, whatever I see will be what I make. And so what I saw was my people, like my just black people being human, being free, being struggling against oppression, like fighting against the system, still being themselves and being beautiful and being proud and being like righteous. Like that's what I saw. And so I said, if, if this is going to go down in flames, like if this is the only chance I'm ever going to have, that's mm-hmm. the type of work I'm going to make. Friends, and welcome to the 17th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artists I'm going to interview. Quick bit of housekeeping before we dive in. If you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, I'm in the middle of a great giveaway on the Pine Copper Line Instagram. I partnered with Mathieu Coulange, who designs stunning handmade printmaking tools from Burens to Barons. Everyone I know who's used these beauties has nothing but amazing things to say about them. So head on over to the Pine Copper Line Instagram now and enter for your chance to win a 150 euro gift certificate to the online store. Looking for other ways to get more involved with PCL? Think about joining the Pine Copper Line Patreon page. I have levels starting at just a dollar a month, and thank yous like totes, stickers, postcards, and personal serenades. And I realized this the other day, I don't say this enough, Thank you so much to everyone who is already a member. It means the world to me that you're saying, hey, I like Pine Copper Lime, and I would like it if it kept existing. And thanks to you all, I've reached that critical tipping point where I'm now officially not actively losing money every time I put out an episode. So, again, your support is amazing, and I truly couldn't do it without you. Also, don't forget to check out the Pine Copper Lime online print gallery. There's some great prints there from Southeast Asia and Australia. Of course, as always, there's a link in the show notes to all of this. My guest this week is Jamal Barber, printmaker, curator, collaborator, podcast host, grad student, husband, and father. Jamal offers his insights into what it takes to be a successful artist, his own story of taking the leap from weekend art fairs to full-time artist, and his print practice making work about all aspects of Black life in America. He also gives us a look into his current exhibition, titled 400, A Collective Flight of Memory, in which Barbara has collaborated with 22 artists as a reflection on the collective Black experience during the 400 years since the first sleigh ships arrived off the coast of Virginia. And it's on exhibition now at the Aviation Community Cultural Center in Atlanta through July 15th, 2019. I have to say, I was a little nervous interviewing another podcast host, 
but Jamal is a spectacular and generous guest with incredible insights to share. So I can't wait to hear what you all think. And without further ado, here's Jamal. Hey, Jamal, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, yeah. I've been. I'm a fan of the podcast, so um, I'm very excited to be included in my printmaker family. <laughs> talk about stuff. You are very much in the printmaker family. We're very happy to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'm maybe I was a little bit more nervous to do this interview than maybe really? any <laughs> other one that I've done <laughs> because. One of as as we'll get into one of the many hats that you wear is being a podcast host. So yes, yes. You know, I feel a little bit like you know I've I've like invited like the sensei into my studio or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just just a, just a fellow a fellow traveler. Think about it like that. Okay, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, because um, I, I, you probably know just as much about it as <laughs> I think you and I both had the same experience where we just were like, man, I really wish a podcast like this existed. I think I'm just going to go make it, even though I've never <laughs> done anything like this before. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds about right. That yeah. was basically what I did. Yeah. You do many things, including hosting the Studio Noise podcast that I want to chat yeah. about more in detail later. But you're an artist, you're a curator, you're a collaborator, you're a father, you're a grad student. Am I missing anything? Ooh. Like, that's a lot. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. It gets, it gets more intimidating when you say it like that. Oh, sorry. Uh, it is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny because I, I do think about it sometimes that um, I, every time I get a chance, I always think like, all right, I'm going to not do this thing, but I end up picking up like two other things. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I never <laughs> really get my time back. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's kind of the curse of, of ambition, I guess. <laughs> I guess that was it. Do you have more than 24 hours in a day somehow? Like, do you have no, a magical... No, I wish I, I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I did. I'm I'm barely holding it together. Like every time somebody sees me, <laughs> they just just keep running around and running around oh, until man. I go to sleep. As, That's all it is. As they say in Australia, "Cheers, mate!" Like <laughs> here you go. Um, but yeah, if you so that's sort of you know how I would I would introduce you. But I'd love to hear your introduction of of yourself and sort of how you would define the who you are, where you are, what you do, interview questions. I think first and foremost, I always describe myself as a printmaker. Mm. Uh, I think that's the one thing, even even beyond just being an artist, because I, I did different types of art before I started printmaking. But when I started printmaking, I started screen printing, like something in my mind clicked that mm. this is the thing, like this is, this is, who I am and, and what I should be doing. And it felt really natural. Mm. So first I always started to say, I'm a printmaker first and foremost. And then it, I often forget that I do the podcast because the podcast is, is so much about me just enjoying the company of other artists. And kind of, that is kind of the, the most pure fun thing that I do is talk to people on the podcast. Mm. Like, even though it is like a lot of work with scheduling and, and finding time and editing uh, my co-host Jasmine does a lot of the editing, 
but the podcast is just about the most fun thing I know I can just go to and enjoy. Like everything else is work. Like grad school mm. is work. Yeah. Like being a being a father is work. Being a husband is work. But, but just sitting back, having a conversation, enjoying the company of of one random other artist. Uh, I I think that's probably the best thing that I do for myself. I, I enjoy printmaking though. Don't get me wrong. Like I love <laughs> printmaking. Like it's like like I love it like too much. Like people don't don't understand like how much like going into the print studio. I work at Atlanta Printmaker Studio down here in Atlanta, and um and they, it's like my favorite place. Like I feel so at home while I'm there. Like I I don't know. It's like it's just something about being in there and working like that. I I do love love love. Wow, that's that's I I feel like that is such a beautiful theme in this podcast, which is that a lot of the guests just talk about that magic moment with printmaking when and it's different, you know, often different media, you know, someone says, oh, I didn't even care about it till I picked up a litho crayon. Or when I had Ali Norman on, she told this story where she was in a litho class first. And the whole time she was in the litho class, she kept looking through into the etching studio. Like she didn't pay any <laughs> attention. So there's just certain media or even, you know, or, or the community or something where people just, they're kind of floating through life and then printmaking hits them. And it's just that, oh. I've come home. And yeah, yeah. I love that so much about what we do. And and it's I love that it's a, a theme in the podcasts. Yeah. And I think for me, um, if you haven't heard this story, but I started printmaking. I went to Bonders, uh, which is an art store here in Atlanta, to get um, more paints because I was doing watercolors and acrylic painting and, and all that kind of stuff at the time. And so I went and I saw a screen printing demo and it was just sitting there. It was maybe it was like an hour and a half, maybe. And it was something about looking at him doing it that I just it just clicked. I just figured it out. Like I knew what I could do. I knew what I could produce. I knew if I did this, I could do that. Like you figure out all the different variety of things you could do, mm-hmm. like in that moment. And then it's like, that's me. Like I can do that. And so that day, instead of bidding, instead of buying my watercolors and stuff, I bought a screen. And I bought all the emotion and, and all the other equipment. And I was doing screen printing out of my closet. Uh, I did it for years. Like, I had it perfectly set up. I, I took my daughter's Elmo chair and, like, a 300-watt light bulb. And I, and I had this, like, studio. It had this rigged up on, like, this little ironing board. It was, like, exactly 18 inches from the screen. It took me 22 minutes to shoot a screen. Oh, my If you know, if you can imagine 22 minutes <laughs> sitting there watching this light bulb. It was terrible, but like, and when I, so when I came to Atlanta Printmaker Studio and it was like a minute and a half, I was like, what? You can make a screen in a minute and a half? It was, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how I started screen printing. So I, I remember taking a class in, at East Carolina. That's where I got my undergrad degree in graphic design. I took a printmaking class there, but I didn't really care about it. And I remember doing woodcuts and we did. I think it was an Italio project. I barely remember that class. But I do kind of remember the woodcut. And that's when I started doing woodcuts. And that's when I really fell in love with printmaking. Mm. And so and so now, that's basically what I do now. It's like woodcuts with screen print enhancements or embellishments or like all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Because I was, I was a little surprised when you were saying that it was sort of screen printing that was the bug that bit you. Because, you know, I really associate you as a woodcut artist and I know you use screen print but I feel like 
woodcut is is what I think about when I think about your work. But... Yeah, I think that that's what's natural to me. Like mm-hmm. now, like it's hard. <laughs> now I started. I'm, I'm in grad school, so I started doing stone lithography mm-hmm. and like getting back to drawing. And like even that process for me is tough because I look at everything like a woodcut. Like it's just a certain way that you are kind of subtracting from your surface to get relief. Like I think like that when I draw now. So I'm having to switch my mm. mentality up completely. But like I said, I fell into it and it's just man natural for me now. Yeah. And I think that that is something that sort of screen print and woodcut have in common is that you're thinking about your image in these um, blocks of color and these like layering yeah. of blocks of color, which is it's like you've been you've been doing the tango and then you're asked to salsa or something you know it's it's really like (laughs) it's it's like a way of really altering how you think of image making um and I can imagine it gets really easy to just fall into that pattern especially once you're comfortable with it and then being asked to like sort of like reverse it a little bit and like go back to just drawing must be interesting yeah it's it's very difficult because especially when I started woodcutting I came from uh, watercolor which is all layering and gradients mm. and and kind of laying it down so when you switch to screen printing it's, it's kind of the same too but it, you think about something being bold like bold graphic like how how punchy can you make it like how in your face impressive big bold kind of thing you can do where watercolor is very delicate and, and kind of flowy and you mm-hmm. know all these like gradients and stuff so I don't know why I was trying to be a watercolor artist so hard. <laughs> like, I, it, it really, it never fit me. Like, I tried, I tried extra hard. Yeah, that's so funny how we we kind of get these ideas in our heads sometimes. And then they just sort of stay there, maybe just because they've been there all along. So you said that you'd gone to your undergrad for graphic design. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, were you always visually minded like were you were you a, a, a kid growing up who was really interested in art like tell me about kind of the the early days of Jamal and a paintbrush you know I didn't actually I didn't actually paint until I got to college like because before that I, I grew up in Littleton North Carolina and if you have ever been in Littleton North Carolina well no, no, I take it back nobody's been in Littleton North Carolina <laughs> except for me Okay. Right. So it's, it's, it's a small place in the middle of nowhere. It's like it used to take me 45 minutes to go to the grocery store. Like, Ooh, there's nothing okay. There. Yeah. So it was mostly the minute we moved there. This was like, man, this elementary school. But the minute we moved there, I wanted to leave. Mm. So it, it always became drawing as a way to not be bored or to be somewhere else or to do something else. But we didn't have a lot of money. So I couldn't afford paints and brushes and all this other stuff so it was basically like drawing like pen pen and paper like mm-hmm. sketchbooks I'm, I'm still a big sketchbook um person like even to this day because it's just it's just a natural way of like kind of expressing yourself when nobody else is around and there's nothing else to do or you know you you rode your bike as much as you want to ride your bike for the day and it's too hot like yeah. you don't want to you just don't want to do all this other stuff so that was kind of the beginning for me so I didn't get access to, I actually didn't meet a real working artist until I was in my 20s. So it wasn't even, to me, it wasn't even possible to be this person that makes art, Mm. only art for a living. Because it's so much about being in small town South is about surviving, Mm -hmm. right? Just, just, you want to get you, I always tell the story, you want to get you some land 
and you want to get you a trailer mm-hmm. and you want to be able to get gas in your car and fix your car when you when when it go wrong like that's kind of the the dream of most of the people there mm-hmm. and like people want more but it's not there so what do you do right you have to go somewhere else and most people don't want to go somewhere else they want to stay by their family and be happy right. so so in, in dealing with that it's very hard to conceive of being an artist as a full-time thing and so this is it became very new and very real when I went to college and I actually saw people that made fantastic, amazing art for real. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is what they did for their entire life. They, they, you know, some of them were teachers, but still like, you know, you teach and make art like that's incredible. Yeah. You're still just being around art all day. Yeah. Yeah. You're still, you're still, yeah, you're still an artist. And like, you know, you tell somebody, Hey, in Littleton or any small town, you can always, whenever you tell somebody that, you, that you're that you an artist, you always get somebody that says, I used to draw. That's the biggest thing. They used to draw and they like to make things and they like to create, but their life is not set up for that. Like my life is set up where I have to pay for this car. So I got to go work at the hospital or the gas station or whatever restaurant is new in town like you know you gotta you gotta live you gotta work in the grocery store you gotta do all these other things you're a mechanic you you know fix cars like whatever you do but art is a luxury thing Mm -hmm. and it's just not in the vocabulary of people that live like that so it wasn't in my vocabulary even though i needed it now now i can look back and see that i needed art because i had more to say than i was allowed to or then I had the opportunity to, is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that was my early life. So being in college, right, I actually went to college fully intending to be a business major. Huh. And, and so, and I was fine, in, <laughs> and I would have done that, but I took this one drawing class as an elective. And soon, that, that first day, as soon as I took it, I was like, I got to call my mama and tell her I'm going to be an art manager. <laughs> and I, I had to figure out, like, how, how am I going to tell her this? <laughs> She's going to be really disappointed. <laughs> but, but she ended up, she ended up being cool with it. Because they, yeah. they, they saw me drawing. Like, I used to draw a lot. I do yeah. all the time. So they saw me drawing a lot. So they, moms, they, they moms knew. know. Yeah. 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 They knew. She knew before I knew. Put it like that. Yeah. My my husband had kind of a, a similar experience where he, he went into – college and he was going to be a ceramics engineer and he was taking the tour of and he he went to alfred which has alfred university in alfred new york incredible printmaking studio there and oh, wow, yeah. he, he was on the tour and he was with his dad and they walked through the printmaking studio and tim didn't even say anything and his dad just turned to him and said please don't switch your major like <laughs> 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 so and then yeah you know he had to make that phone call you know yeah, yeah. Uh, dad yeah especially, especially like when you when you start doing it like it's really nothing else like making art mm-hmm. like it's i don't you know if you it's hard to explain it to people like my wife is a chemist mm-hmm. so I, I imagine that she feels the same way about like mixing chemicals that mm-hmm. i do about like carbon wood like it's got to be the same because it's like what else could I do? What uh, at this point? What else could I really do that way I would be satisfied at? And I cannot yeah. imagine doing anything else 
And so, you know, that's where you start at. Like, yo, how now? <laughs> now that is, how can I do this and make money? Yes. And so, <laughs> and so there you go. Now, now that's the rest of my life. <laughs> From that day, that was the rest of my life. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about Studio Noise is when you and your co sorry, what's Jasmine's last name? Williams. Williams. Jasmine Nicole. Yeah, what's yeah. up, Jasmine? I know yeah. she's listening. <laughs> yeah, hi, Jasmine. <laughs> um, so, so when you guys talk about art or or the art scene, you also talk about these really kind of practical ideas as well in it, and I think that that's so important for artists to hear because it's it's not this totally like head in the clouds theoretical. You, you know, right. praxis, blah, blah, blah. I love it when you guys just will sometimes just talk about nuts and bolts advice for an artist. Like, how, like, you, like, I think it was your most recent one before you guys went on break. It was just the two of you. And you just were like saying all of this great stuff that I was like, this should be required. This episode should be required <laughs> listening for any art undergrad, because I think that you do have a great balance of being in love with art, being in love with printmaking. Like anyone can hear that from the way you talk about it. But you also have this other side where you're like, how do I make this work? You know, I know that it's like, you can't just lock yourself away in the print studio all day and just make, and then sit back and complain about why no one's giving you any money. Like, (laughs) um, so yeah, like just kind of about like, like this is how you get yourself seen and this is how you do that, which is totally a conversation that needs to happen more in art school and in the art world in general. But I think sometimes we get these ideas that like, oh, you want to make money? I guess you're not a real artist. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And in grad school, it's a lot like that, too. Well, not necessarily like, but they want to make sure you know the things about art, which is cool, which is exactly where you go to school. Right. But like I'm learning a lot just being in school and, and having the time to to learn lithography like stone lithography, like a sit with it and mm-hmm. have my own like set of stones I can pick and grind and mess it up. Like all this stuff is, is mad practical. But I was a full-time artist for five years before I got into grad school. And mm-hmm. I was working, a working artist, quote unquote, when, uh, let's see, I moved to Atlanta and I end up, I got a lot of different jobs. And then I end up getting a graphic design job. And I had that for seven years. And then when I got laid off from that job was kind of the point where I was like, okay, I had been doing art shows on the weekend. I got into like the Decatur Art Festival show down here. I was doing art walks. I was like, you know, getting my name out there. Like we like, we always tell people to do it. And then it just came to that point where after I got laid off from the graphic design job, I could not imagine myself going and, and getting back in the process of applying for a job, hmm. like trying to like appease this other person to please allow me to make a living and take care of my family for, for your peanuts when you making like however many thousands of dollars off my work. Yeah. And so, and I know that when I talk to people, it's never the art that makes it hard, right? The art is the fun part, like the making, the the sitting in your house, even if people don't have a studio, if they just sit at their, their coffee table in their living room and they're painting, they feel good in that moment. But then what do you do? Because it's not enough. <laughs> like you, you, you have to do so much other things 
so many other things to get back to that moment of this is what I love to do and this is what I enjoy. Like the practical matter is how do you get more time in the studio? A lot of those people, and that probably comes from the story I told you before, how everybody used to draw. They used to draw and they used to enjoy it and they, they really enjoyed it and they would if they had the opportunity, but they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And so that's always the biggest problem that I run into with anybody that I meet just in, in that come into APS, uh, Atlanta Premier Studio, or that come to those art walks I used to go on, like outside of like Marietta neighborhoods and stuff like that. That is always the issue. It's always the other things that get in the way. It's like the the perseverance, the stick with itness. Is the, that's not a word, but <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of that thing where. How do you hold on when it's absolutely not benefiting you immediately in any shape, form, or fashion other than emotional happiness? And you can't buy anything with emotional happiness. Right. So what do you do? Like, you don't give it up. That's my that's my biggest thing to people is don't give it up. Let's sit down and figure out what do you have to do? What can you do to get it going? It might force you to get out your comfort zone. You have to get out your comfort zone in order to in order to do it. Mm-hmm. Like anybody that's ever had a booth at a festival, no, you're just sitting here <laughs> in the sun and right. it's hot and it's, you know, people are just walking by not paying any attention to you. You have to do that. You have to sit there, be looked at and gawked at by hundreds of people that don't care about anything about you or your life until that one person that comes by that does. Right. And mm-hmm. you just have to hold on till you get to that person. So how can I help you? And I love people too. And I love artists. And I know how hard it is because it was hard for me. It's, it, it was very hard for me to just sit there, especially the type of work that I make. It, it's not like super acceptable everywhere you go. Like, mm. you know, when you're doing art fairs and stuff like that, if people do birds or like <laughs> trees or like, you know, any any innocuous thing that people can like see and just walk by and like, yo, I like this butterfly. Here you go. Take some money. I mean, I'm making work about race relations and black identity. Like, it's really not everybody's cup of tea. And so how do I take care of myself, my mental health, to get to that point? And that's way more important than in terms of the practicality of being an artist. That's the hard part. Everybody can make. Like, everybody can draw. Like, you know, I'm not the best drawer that I know by far. Like, I'm not, like, a lot of the people that I know that are really good at drawing, or don't even make a living off their artwork. Totally, yeah. Because they just, they haven't figured that out. They haven't figured that part out. And that's, that is the hard part. So I want to help. So when I see people that I know, and, and I don't do this for everybody, but I do it for the people that I know only need an extra push. Not the people that you need to like, <laughs> like Humpty Dumpty, like <laughs> fell off the wall, like you can't put them back together. I don't want to help the people that I can't put together, like you know, like that that just are not emotionally ready to <laughs> to mm. deal with these type of things. And like you got to like always piece them together with like tape and, and duct tape and glue. I, I just I'm looking at people that fell down off the wall and they just have a little crack and they just need to you know just hold it together just a little while longer mm. while until they can find their audience. And that's always the hard part about art. What would you say to someone who's maybe listening to this and feeling like like they just have a little crack right now? <laughs> you know, that like, what do you put in that emotional space in between feeling like you've just fallen 
and finding an audience, you know? I, I think that for most of the people that I've talked to, and you might get this on your podcast too, is that the, the successful people keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, even when it, even when it's not fun, even when it's not comfortable, even when you don't have money, like a person that would make art when they only have enough money to either go to the movies or make art, and they choose to make art. Yeah. That person will be the one that will eventually find an audience, and I just say eventually because I don't know when that is. Nobody can tell you when it is. Like we 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 will never know. Like I um. I didn't sell anything at all of those art walks and stuff I went to, mm-hmm. right? But I kept making art because I kept thinking that, because to me, and most people that, that do end up being successful that I know have it in them that I just have to make my art better. Like if you if that's your conclusion at the end of all the obstacles you get to and you say, I have to make my art better. Because if my art was better, then they'll get somebody's attention. Mm-hmm. So the people that jump to that conclusion will eventually succeed and kind of it's the people that make all the other conclusions so you kind of have to talk them out of it like no it's not it's not the shirt you wore right. no it's not <laughs> you know it's not not the not the walls that you got for your booth no it's not that they'll blame every other thing well it was raining yeah um that day for that one day and then you know i got i woke up late and it's not like no nah, it's not all of those things it's like if you can always lean into your artwork, then then that'll be what sustains you because ultimately that's what makes all artists feel good. It's the artwork. Like it's not, I mean, no artist that I know enjoys accounting, <laughs> right? Or, or marketing or any of this other stuff. Like it's always the artwork. So I always tell people to, to somehow focus on the art and whatever conversation I have with them is usually art focused. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you go to, like if you went to a festival and you didn't sell anything, my question would be, what could you what could you change for the next time that might get you a little bit better sales, right? Could you could your signage be better? Could you have more lower price work available? Could you have presented it better? Like it's like all it's all those type of things, the things that you can actually change, <laughs> right? Because right? you cannot change who walks in that booth. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't change the weather you can't change like all the other stuff you can't change you being beside a super popular artist that does something completely different from you mm-hmm. so his crowd that he's drawn he does flowers and you do cows mm-hmm. like but it's a, you, so you're surrounded by people that like flowers but you don't do flowers mm-hmm. like you can't change that like you just have to be like happy and satisfied with it it's a hard thing to tell somebody <laughs> believe me i I've, I've sat there and i and i've spent years like feeling bad and I don't want people to feel bad. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah. I, I know how I, I know how I felt in that situation when I'm making this art that I think is great and nobody responded to it. <laughs> right. Like yeah. so, you know, it's I mean, it's a it is a low feeling, y'all. <laughs> and I don't I don't mean to like to make it so like emotional and stuff like that, but but, it but is. most art, yeah, most art is very emotional. Like yeah. you create from an emotional place. And so it emotionally affects you when you don't think people like you. You don't think like, not just that people don't like your work, that they don't like you. Totally. You, yeah. you are a bad person <laughs> you know, <laughs> sitting here making these cows when you obviously know everybody wants flowers. Like, you know, like what's wrong with you? Like that, those type of feelings are not, 
are supernatural and they're not healthy and there and there are ways that we can talk about it and you can and I can support you and continue in your journey because you never know like you you couldn't have told those people that walked past me at the Marietta Art Walks that I would be making pieces that sell for the amount of money that they do now mm-hmm. like they they would never know that like they just like oh you know him over there making that you know that black stuff you know uh-huh no, I love I love all of that and um and yeah. I was I was hoping I could like I was, I was like I was hoping I could trick you into like saying some of that good stuff. <laughs> Did it, yeah. <laughs> but, oh yeah, I, I I get to going on that stuff. Yeah, I, I love it. No, it's it's yeah. one of my, my favorite things. Yeah, cause, you so. know what? Cause I, I, yeah, cause I, I, I love artists, yo. Yeah. It's nothing it's nothing like talking to as a creative, talking to somebody else that doesn't see the world as it is mm-hmm. right and i think that's what we all do like in some shape form or fashion we envision and create a different world than what we see we yeah. take in these like um external uh stimuli and we filter it through us so what comes out is us and like it's is it's a very particular way of seeing the world and i and i feel like most of the time when i connect to other people like i i know them in a way that I don't really know regular people, if that makes sense. Mm, mm-hmm. Like regular people that just go to the nine to five. Like I don't understand the nine to five. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand it when I was there, <laughs> you know, people <laughs> that can, that work for 20 years and never make anything. Like you never even want to make anything. Mm-hmm. Like, oh man, that's tough. Like, <laughs> it's hard. like I feel how, sorry for them. How do you like, wake up in the morning? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like why? <laughs> why, why, why bother you? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, but I, I love artists and I want to support like everybody the way that I wish that I would have been supported. Even as a kid, like even even looking back at like growing up at Littleton, like people knew I could draw and they acknowledged me, but they couldn't support me. Like they didn't have a concept of feeding into my creativity or my, my being as an artist. They couldn't imagine it. So I didn't get it. So for a long time, there was an emptiness that I had to feel myself eventually. But now when I start to understand that feeling, I realize, I look back at some people and realize that that's exactly the same thing they're going through. That's how you used to be an artist. That's how you used to draw. And that, and that's a sad thing. Like, you should still be drawing. Like, why, why, did you, why would you stop? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of thing. Yeah. I was talking to a friend the other day who... Uh, is a writer and she's just kind of recently gotten in this situation where she's been able to quit her nine to five. And now she's just kind of bouncing around the States and Canada going from residency to residency. And she worked really, really hard to get in a situation where she could do that. So she, you know, applied for all the grants and she saved all the money. You know, she would never, it wasn't like, I'm going to go to happy hour on Fridays with the work guys afterwards. She's like, no, that money's going into savings and I'm going into the studio to write, you know, and, and it's, I have so much admiration for her, but what we were talking about was the people who don't understand sort of creating extra work for yourself. When you talk to people who are just satisfied with a nine to five, they're like, did you, have you seen, I don't know, like, have you been following Game of Thrones or I don't know, they ask you something and you're like, oh, no, I haven't had time. 
And they're like, yeah. what have you been doing? And you're like, well, you know, I, <laughs> I make art and I run this podcast. And, and it's just, they don't, there's just sort of, they look at you like you're crazy. Like, why would you do something when you didn't have to? Like, it, it's, 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 it's so fundamentally different brain function, it seems like, for someone who can't yeah. conceive of why you would want to work all the time when you didn't have to like it's just like why would you do yeah. that like yeah um and then and that but that's exactly what it is just it's working all of the time yeah but it's but it's 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 and they've also a lot of people don't have the concept of enjoying work right mm -hmm. totally like enjoying what you do totally. like this is like like if people ask me like what do i do when i'm not making art it's like i'm thinking about making art that's right. what I'm, doing. I'm planning like, about you know, what i'm gonna yeah, make next like you know what i'm saying hoping i can go back like <laughs> so i mean that that's the whole whole point so some people don't don't have that type of enjoyment in their life or they get it from different ways and that, that's what i'm always fascinated with too is it's like what what do you do for fun mm -hmm. like what do you do not just for fun but to fulfill yourself and it can be anything. It doesn't have to be making art. Like you can just be an avid reader and like really enjoy it. And like that's that's super cool too. But it's got to be something. And so, you know, most artists that something is making art, and you just got to find a way to get back to it. Yeah, I'd I'd love to to take this this transition to to talk more specifically about your work because we touched on it yeah. a little bit. If I can quote you back to yourself from your website, you say, my aim is to create a new kind of propaganda to spread messages that speak to all aspects of black life. And yeah, uh, yeah. and so I think I was, I was thinking about that, you know, from what I've seen of your work, it's definitely, you can tell it's, it's a reflection of black identity. And I wanted to ask you sort of, at what point did you realize, like, this is what I want my message to me? Like, this is what moves me in this way that I need to create work about this. Like, how did that, was that always present in your practice or was it something that you came to? Like, how did this, this come to be your, your inspiration? I think I, I have to tell you two stories mm. um, and then it'll, it'll sum up the whole thing where first is Anybody that knows me from like high school or way back know that I've always been extra sensitive about racial stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because I can't look at the history of what happened in America and, and not see it as a direct indictment on myself and how I'm going to be viewed um, fairly or unfairly. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been angry about that. My best friend will tell you that from my best friend Mike from fourth grade, he'll tell you that the when I saw the movie Rosewood, I don't know if you ever seen the movie Rosewood, but mm -hmm. um, Rosewood, the town of Rosewood, um, there was a, a white woman lied and said that a, a black man had attacked her. And so they basically came to this black town called Rosewood and basically killed all the men Mm. and we're, we're coming after the women like it was a big mm. racial attack it was this huge huge thing like after i saw that movie i couldn't talk to people for like two weeks yeah because i was so angry and i was so worked up and so i know that at the the way that people see race i know that i'm the person that will suffer any consequences from any from race being in the equation like mm -hmm. as a black man, I will ultimately be be the person that suffers. So if you look at 
people being pulled over by police, like auto auto traffic tickets and stuff. Like across across every state, every city, every region in America, black people are pulled over at a rate two to three times higher than a white person. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Now that's that's now so it's either two things. Like either black people can inherently not drive <laughs> naturally in our DNA. Like we just are impossible. <laughs> we can't learn how to drive. Or something is being done to us. Yeah. And I, now now more than likely something is being done to us. And so that's how I felt my entire life. Like and and I'm always pushing back against whatever stereotype it is because most of the time it's not true. And if you bother to give me the benefit of being of humanity, then you would see that everything that's happening is perfectly natural. But often in that equation, you won't get that. Like these assumptions kind of stick with people and, and I have to suffer with it. Like I have to be followed around the store when I got money and I'm looking yeah. to buy something and I'm still followed around as if I'm trying to steal. Like that's ridiculous. Like it's ridiculous for other people to have to go through it. So empathy is a big thing for me where I don't like to see my people suffer. So a lot of times, especially growing up in Littleton, North Carolina, it's, it's basically 95% black. Mm -hmm. Like my school was 95% black all the way through high school. I didn't really talk to a white person in a meaningful conversation. Like not, not like I didn't know any, but not in a meaningful person to person conversation until I got to college. So I'm what, 18? 19 years old like by that time yeah so and and so that has skewed my point of view where i know that black people are human i know that a lot of things that are attributed to negative stereotypes about race are just not true or complete misunderstandings yeah. or are being judged against a standard that we have never been able to live by even mm -hmm. to the point of where i lived in littleton north carolina there was a black area in Newton, North Carolina, in 19, what is this, 1989, there's a black area. How do you think that black area got there? You think we just all just decided to live with each other? Yeah. Like, yeah. just out of the blue, like, one year, like, 87, we just like, yo, we're all going <laughs> to live together. Like, nah, that's not what happened. So you got to understand the history. And so the second thing that happened was when I did get laid off from my graphic design job, I sat there and thought, like, when I got my severance package, it was like, this is the one chance that I'm ever going to have to be a full-time artist, like to, to really like live in it and be happy. And so you got to figure out, like I had done the shows and I wasn't being super successful. I was still making art. And I was just thinking like, if, if this is going to go down in flames, <laughs> what do I want to be doing? <laughs> right. Like, what, what kind of work do I want to be making if I'm going to make stuff for the next year? and nobody buy it. What is going to make me absolutely happy? So I said that whenever I close my eyes, whatever I see will be what I make. And so what I saw was my people, like my just black people being human, being free, being struggling against oppression, like fighting against the system, still being themselves and being beautiful and being proud and being like righteous. Like, that's what I saw. And so I said, if, if this is going to go down in flames, like if this is the only chance I'm ever going to have, that's mm -hmm. the type of work I'm going to make. And so that's what happened. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So that's where it came from. And it worked. I was, was <laughs> going to say, I think that that's, 
that's such such a sort of beautiful lesson in like what kind of work really connects with people and it's it's the work that's coming from the artist that is like I love that turn of phrase you said like what do I see when I close my eyes right and it's like it's when it's coming from this this pure making this like this pure drive of what's like deep in your bones a part of you that you're passionate about it's like a beautiful way to connect with other people yeah and i and i was extra nervous about it too like because mm-hmm. i mean you know you're sitting there you're sitting there and you betting the whole farm on making black art it's like ah, uh, <laughs> you know that's not, probably not the smartest thing in the universe for you to do but it's like you know this is what i'm gonna do yeah kind of and and i was extra surprised that when i did start making that and stop like my work is getting has steadily become more pointed and more mm-hmm. direct about about what I'm trying to say. It, it becomes about, and 400 especially, the show is just, it's, it's all about this blackness and it's kind of almost a thesis on like what I feel about it. And so the more that I get into it, the more I start to tap into that thing, I think the more that people like it, all people, not just black people. And I don't make art just for black people. Mm-hmm. Like I make art that focuses on the humanity of individuals that happen to be black. Not, I, I take that back. They don't happen. To be right. black. They are they are they yeah. are specifically black. Yeah. And specifically human. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm showing you, without cutting it for you. Like I'm not like sugarcoating it or I'm not giving it. Like I'm I'm unapologetically showing these people, in their humanity that you have to acknowledge, and you have to. And one of the things that I I specifically thought was because I know that race is such a barrier in America that the way that I present it has to be executed at a higher quality than I would think I, that I'm capable of doing. Hmm. So I'm always pushing to be more special with how I produce my work, like how, how my woodcuts look, the different layers that I'm adding onto it. I feel like it has to be more, more great because I am dealing with such a, a tough topic for people. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully, hopefully that's what people see that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So something that I've wondered about when it comes to honestly just collecting and collecting black artists and, you know, trying to be sensitive to to this this pattern that can happen where, you know, someone who's a member of any minority is often asked to speak for the collective, you know? So, right. right. So, you know, sort of keeping that in mind, but it came up kind of in what you were talking about, how you're making work about Black identity, but not just for a Black audience, is that a lot of times work about Black identities, of course, has Black bodies in it, right? And that's absolutely makes right. sense. And so as a white person, if I wanted to collect that, because I think it's beautiful, because I want to support the artist, because I want to be an ally, you know, whatever that motivation is, I have a certain, I don't know, maybe anxiety or sensitivity, though, about like, let's say, like putting an image of a black woman framed on my wall, because there's such a tradition of like the exotification, objectification of black bodies by white people so what's um I don't even maybe that's just sort of the question in and of itself is that like if I want to support and collect the art but is there something sort of inherently problematic about me than displaying it or if I have a connection to it is it different I just love to hear your thoughts on that 
sort of particular aspect of of I guess just racial dynamic within art within the world um I would say it's, it's an interesting question mm-hmm. um because you can appreciate artwork that has a black body in it mm-hmm. if you can appreciate the humanity of that figure and so there really is no barrier between you collecting and displaying it if that's what you like. Right. And kind of, and kind of, in a way, you have to be confident in your own point of view, in your own mm-hmm. perspective, to to challenge anybody that challenges you. I would say that mm-hmm. is that when people. That's a. That's a let's see. I want to I want to put it in a in a great way. <laughs> yeah, sorry <laughs> like for like putting you on the spot guy. with like a super heavy question. Oh but... no, no, this is but this is this is a fun question because okay. you know what I, I I had this conversation about in grad school they were talking about whether or not the work that I was making if they were the proper audience for it, hmm. and that was and I'm the only black person. Well, it's two black people, but one is a third year, and it was me. There are other minorities in it, but most of the people identify as white. And so the the thing is that that this is the contract that we've signed to be in this space together and critique each other's work. So my work is about race. So that's what you have to critique. That's what you have to contend with. And, and kind of whatever your work is about is what I have to contend with. But I don't get to hide behind well, I'm a man, so I don't understand feminist work, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm straight, so I don't understand gay work or, or heterosexual, homosexual, like whatever you're talking about. I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a straight man. I, I can't worry with it. Like I don't, I don't have behind that, and that, that that limits the true engagement of what we're trying to say. I don't think anybody's trying to make work in a vacuum. I don't want to make work in a vacuum. Right. I don't want I don't want my work to only be bought by black people. I'm making to me, I'm making huge statements about humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And so so I want you to relate to it. I want you to look at one of my pieces and think that is absolutely beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. And I would like it in my house. I want you to have it in your house. I want you to show it in your house and be proud of it. And I want when somebody asks you, why do you have these black people hanging in your house? I want you to tell them exactly how you feel. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. And so I so I don't want you to to succumb to the the pressure of otherness. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's kind of what it is, right? Is that you have something that is not you in your house. Why? You know, do you deserve to have these black figures in your house? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. you, so I so I, on that end I would want you to be comfortable enough in how you feel about liking these figures or enjoying the black bodies or enjoying the artists, however they carve or however they, they paint stuff, right? Like Margaret Bolin. Margaret Bolin is a painter. She paints these black children, uh, black little girls and stuff and, and all these different things, but she's a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if a white person, <laughs> this is a trick question, but if a white person was to buy of painting of a black person by a white person, does that eliminate the question that you're asking? 
Mm-hmm. Or is it different because it is from a white person? You see what I'm saying? Like ultimately, that part of it should be inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Like you just you feel how you feel, and that's how you should feel. That's how everybody should feel. Like I don't not show white people work in my house. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. right. It, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So I so I and so in that same notion, I think it's ridiculous. For you not to show black people in your house, mm-hmm. or not to show a work featuring a black figure that you think is great, you think is great. That's your that's your response to it. Right? Is you is you like it, and that's enough. That's enough for all collectors, because ultimately that's the only thing that we're doing is when people collect art is that it speaks to them somehow and reverberates in their soul to the point that they must possess it. And it doesn't, and it, it doesn't get more visceral than that. So if I can make something that, that you as a white person or any white person sees and enjoys, white people like um, one of the one of the pieces that I often sell that, that people really like is this piece called "To Be Free." So it's a black person uh, woodcut, and they like have these hands like pulling on him. It looks like it's pulling on his mm-hmm. shirt. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, one. like yeah. It, yeah. So that's a that's a strong piece, and it's talking about perseverance. Perseverance is not black perseverance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like it's all of us can can persevere. Maybe you're persevering through something different than, but these hands can be representative of whatever you want them to be. Like this black figure can be a any man. It doesn't have to be just a black man like I can't relate to it because he's a black man that doesn't make any sense totally yeah no that's oh that was a good question oh, oh good like <laughs> good I'm glad I'm glad because it's um yeah and I love what you're saying about how kind of you know to give too much energy to it in that way is, is to sort of double down on the otherness and exactly and to also double down on that extremely problematic notion that a human body is by default white, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That there's no way for me to relate to it. Like, mm-hmm. it's impossible. Like, is it really impossible for a white man to relate to a black man going through something? I don't right. think so. Mm-hmm. And and anybody that does think so, there's a problem with them, not with you. That's mm-hmm. what I would say. Is yeah. that, you know, I mean, you think about it in terms of like television and stuff. Most shows have white leads. Oh, absolutely. So if I yeah. was, so if I was to say that I would never relate to any show, I would I would not watch any TV, and that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Like it doesn't doesn't make any sense. Like the same way people complain if like James Bond was black or something like that. Totally. Like that con- that whole conversation. But yeah, I I personally I acknowledge the humanity of all people, and I specifically make my work to fight against people that would not acknowledge my humanity in return. Mm-hmm. And so that that is the bar for me in all circumstances. And and I just simply don't accept anything else. And that's how that's how anybody should be. So if you collect in black work and you like it and the black artists are like great. I think that's what the problem was with black artists now that are just now getting their due. Like in over here, I talk about Charles White a lot, but Charles White was a phenomenal artist. Mm-hmm. He's probably one of the best draftsmen in American history, but he was not given the proper due because he was black. And so you can, he has a retrospective now that's traveling around and it's a phenomenal show. It's amazing. He does incredible print work. 
incredible, like mind blowing, like the same kind of mind blowing as anybody else you've ever seen. He's probably better than them. And he didn't, he couldn't get his due because of his blackness. Mm-hmm. And when I think of like other, other black artists that would get into shows based on their work and then be rejected from the show when they find out that you're black. Right. Like I, I, I can't remember the artist, but they, they got a letter in the mail after being accepted into a show. And the letter told them, oh, we didn't know you were black. So now that you're black, we can't show your work mm. here, even though they were in the contest and yeah. were in the show. Like, so, you know, there's all these, all these kind of <laughs> issues that, that people have to contend with that I simply, I don't acknowledge it. Like it doesn't, like it, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, that's, that's all it's just it's just really beautiful honestly like I love it like I love what you're saying about that it's um yeah that that's just that thread of humanity and human experience and that you know obviously race in America is and anywhere you know is is so complicated and it's it's historical it's systematic it's intentional and unintentional but one of the really core roots of it is people profiting on convincing people that they're they're different you know and right you know different from each other different from the standard whatever it is and which of course is is just not true <laughs> you know like yeah, like experiences are different and i think it works the other way too where i did i did this the black baby project mm-hmm. right which is um um it's a print that i did and i end up making a print that was to me i thought it was super powerful but my wife hated it mm. i made this print of it was a lino cut of a baby then i screen printed like an orange jumpsuit on it and it said mm. doc for department <laughs> of corrections um on it so it was, i thought it was a really strong piece my wife hated it <laughs> and in that in that sense that i wanted to redo it but i couldn't get the initial idea out of my head so i started giving it to other artists so i'm basically printing this lino cut of a black child onto this paper and then handing it to other artists and saying, look, what is your message for a black child like born right now? Hmm. And, and I, and I purposely picked black artists, but I personally picked non-black artists because the same way I hand my children over to the school system here, they're not, it's not an all black school system. Like it's mostly white. Right. And, and that's fine. Like I trust them with my child. Like you, you can't have no greater trust. And I have left my child with you <laughs> yeah. in your care and, and not and not like followed you around with a knife to your back. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I absolutely love my children. So yeah. the fact that I have that kind of trust is that I trust you to recognize the humanity of my children the same way that you would recognize the humanity of your children. And I hope Paul doesn't mind me telling the story, but Paul Roden, um, one of the artists um, that did one of the Black Baby Prince, he was he was saying kind of the same thing you were, where he was hesitant about doing it. He, he didn't want to step on any toes. Um, he don't want to, you know, don't want to go off and, and say too much. And you know what? I appreciate that. Like, I appreciate you recognizing what it is mm. and attempting to respond to it in a meaningful way. And, and, and I basically told him, like, I know what this means for you as a white person to paint on this black child. Mm-hmm. I know what it means. 
and I am accepting of it because this black child belongs to the community. This black child is an American. My kids are American. They are black American. They each have their own individual identity, but they are American. We belong in the system. Like we have to acknowledge and accept each other. And it is up to you or any other non-black person that my child interacts with to kind of take up that, that the role of nurturing my children. I want that. I don't want them to simply be in a bubble only touched by black people. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, so the exposure across these different cultures leads to a more well-rounded child. So I appreciate Paul being a part of it. I appreciate Diane Hickscox being a part of it. She's Canadian. I appreciate Sude, who is Iranian grad student at Georgia State. Like, I appreciate all of these other cultures and people being a part of it. Because you have to, at some point, if you can't care for a child, then we have lost all humanity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's us. I think that we can, at least at this point, recognize the helplessness of any child of any color and just acknowledge that we care about them. And mm-hmm. if we can start there, then everything can be fixed. Yeah. I, you totally gave me goosebumps. <laughs> like, that's so... <laughs> Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know it's a printmaking podcast, but I, I, <laughs> I, I do. I, but, I, I, you know, I feel these things so so to my core. Yeah. Like like that, that it is a shame some of the things that I've seen mm-hmm. that we have accepted as a society. And a lot of times, like I said, I'm the one that'll be, it's an extreme example, but I'm Trayvon Martin. Right. Right. Yeah. And if if there's if there has ever been an incident of that magnitude, I will be the one that's shot in the and whoever it is will be escaped because it is automatically figured that at some point I in my blackness have probably done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that that hurts your heart, you mm-hmm. know. And so we shouldn't be like that. And so yeah. that that's ultimately what I want to get at that that hopefully by through my artwork and expressing these ideas of of blackness as individuals, as people, as as just my blackness alone does not inhibit my voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's basically all I want. <laughs> and so and so some and so sometimes that takes on different forms, right? So sometimes sometimes it is direct propaganda like my pieces that say um, be American or strength through unity like sometimes it's 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 in your face aggressive trying to push back against you taking my humanity and sometimes it's just me loving my wife with my black love series or being Mm -hmm. beautiful like and accepting ourselves sometimes it looks like that but it can look like a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and so i hope that's i hope that's what people see when they look at my artwork yeah yeah i'd also i'd love to hear you talk about the exhibition that you touched on too, because I feel like it's a big part of this this whole conversation is the 400 exhibition that's actually on the Aviation Center. Yeah. So the 400 show, I was all I love collaborating between artists. Like so, when I look and I study people like Bob Blackburn, who used to work with all kinds of artists in his studio, and and the experience that I've had working with other people to non printmakers to make prints. Um, just introducing them to techniques, the whole like problem solving part mm-hmm. of it. I love that part, the connection between 
the kind of creative energy that gets shared between two people. So I, I always wanted to do a show that would be all collaborations and I just needed a way to do it. So, so now this year is 2019. The first slave ships arrived in America in 1619 um, that listed 20 and odd Negroes as part of the, the cattle. I, I don't know mm. what the right word is. Cargo yeah. was 20 and odd Negroes. So the, that was the beginning of the journey. So it'll be exactly 400 years. So as we as humans often do try to make time significant, right, put meaning to our lives and, and our individual struggles, this 400 year anniversary came along and it's like, this is this is a perfect time to make some kind of statement about it, to say that from that moment till now, what can we acknowledge as having happened? What can we acknowledge that has been significant and what can we acknowledge that we want for the future? Because one of the artists in, that was in, participated in the show pointed out that the 400 years, 1619, was not the beginning of a story. Right. And, and 2019 now is not the end of a story. And, but in this, in this time period, what kind of statements could we make? And so if I'm talking about, a lot of my work is about blackness. So the last show I did before that was called Bright Black, which was me trying to figure out if, if I'm going to make work about black identity, what does it mean to me to be black? And kind of what, is it, what does that entail? Inside of that show, there was this one piece called The Council. Uh, and it was these like five faces that were kind of like cut up and like overlapping each other. It was a, it was a great print. And part of that was that my idea of blackness comes from my understanding of everybody else's experience of blackness. Because I won't be treated any differently than a black person in Mississippi or L.A. or New York or wherever you're from your experience of blackness is just as valid as any other experience of blackness. And it can mean different things to every person that, that's involved. So if I'm gonna tell the story of the last 400 years of black America, black Americans, period, I didn't wanna tell it by myself. So I brought in all these other different artists. Most of them were not printmakers, some of them were but over the year, it took a whole year to make this show, but I basically collaborated with every single artist in there. I think it ended mm. up being like 20, 22 artists um, that I ended up um, collaborating with. And we made different types of work, in the, and I didn't define strictly what collaboration was, right? So the Black Baby Project came out of it as a way for other people to collaborate with me and just embellishing one of my prints, right? To me, that's collaboration, right? Me sitting down with another printmaker, Jasmine, the co-host from the podcast, and like plotting out and planning and adding to and working up a concept to make a print, original print, that's collaboration, right? Me being a master printer type for uh, another artist, Kevin Cole, printing for him, that's collaboration. So all these different ways of collaborating, we did like sculptural elements with Grace Kisa, where I've took two woodcuts that I made and I made like a house out of it. And so the house essentially functions as a stage for her to do her mixed media sculptures in. And she made these like very nice, like resin figures with like zip ties and like sisal and like mm. wood chips. And man, it was, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic piece. But, you know, making all these different ways of collaborating and the kind of the common denominator would be me, where I would be guiding 
of relating all of these different voices into one voice. So ultimately I wanted to do a show that I didn't have my name on any one piece, but the show in its entirety was a reflection of me taking in all these other different perspectives and trying to understand exactly what do I feel about where we are as a people? Because some people feel good about it and some people don't. Mm -hmm. Like why do you, and I have to kind of understand what don't you like about it? What do you like about it? And that informs my own understanding as I try to figure out where I sit in, in this whole struggle. So it, it was, man, it was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> yeah. like. Because <laughs> yeah, I did, because yeah. I, I started right in the middle of doing this show, like two months later, I started grad school yeah. at, Georgia, at Georgia State. So, man, it was, it was, it was a tremendous amount of work, but it was well worth it. Yeah. And I think the show, the show turned out fantastic. It looks it was, it was incredible brilliant. from the photos. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And they and, and a lot of them can be seen, I was going to say, for anyone who's listening and wants to wants to take a look at any of this, is your Instagram probably the best place? Is it Studio Noise Instagram? Is it both? Like, if they want to pull up on their phones it's, right now? Yeah, a lot of it will be on my Instagram. Okay. I'll but link, I'm also link in the show notes, I, of course. Yeah. yeah. So I'm also <laughs> updating my website with a page specifically dedicated oh, good, to it. Good. And they'll have – and because we did – uh, we did a lot of work. We did made a couple of videos. We made like a documentary like video of the whole process starting from like our first meeting hmm. um, way back in July last year until now, like it talked to all the other artists. So there's a lot of stuff that went into the show that I'm trying to find a way to present and probably try to try to put it other places. I think it's a, a really strong show. Yeah. So I, I would love for it to have more homes, like mm -hmm. be able to travel like other places or or do other things. Yeah, that's always that's always would be nice. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. So you said you're you're the collaborator. Is printmaking have a pretty big place in that show because of that, or were you kind of like just really more fluid with the with the media? Oh no, it it's it was a lot of printmaking because I did screen print inside of it. Mm -hmm. I did uh, image transfers. I did carving. Uh, we did woodcuts. We did some of the black baby stuff where they they colored on my prints. I took the wood blocks and made a house. Hmm. So it, man, it was a yeah, it was a, it was because my practice is basically printmaking. Yeah, and so I'm 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 basically bringing in whoever whoever has whatever you do. How can I put that into a print, like or or translate it into what I know, which is printmaking. So. Like the photographer, Nintrice Miller, she has these photos, and then I did image transfers with it, but I distorted the image transfers with acetone before we printed them. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of different processes that went into it, mm -hmm. but it's a lot of printmaking in the show. And then it doesn't, it doesn't always feel like it because some of the pieces, like um, Tracy Morrell did this one piece that was like a ship in resin, and it has like all these like torn pieces of paper. If you have to look closely, but I screen printed a pattern and colored the paper that she tore up into the painting. Yeah. So that was the element that I added, but it's not, it's not traditionally printmaking. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, like totally. I'm just, yeah. I, I use, I use printmaking to create the material that she used for the collage. Like, so like, even if it's like one or two steps removed, it's still at the heart of it is about printmaking. Absolutely. And I think. Yeah. That's what I love about printmaking too, is that it can it can be translated into all these other mediums. 
like it doesn't have to be additions of very you know super clean two inch borders you know that kind of thing like you can create the material for other things like yeah. the wood block itself um and I've, I've used this a lot i'll use it in my last show too but the wood blocks that are created are themselves art before you even print it like mm -hmm. you look at it it's the texture you can feel like all the marks and and all the stuff in it like even like after it's inked the way some of it the ink sits on the surface and some of the lines are filled in like it feels like its own character already that's what i love about printmaking like it's so much you can do with it and i think to you know to, to put printmaking in the box of like it has to be flat it has to be addition this sort of thing you're yeah. totally glossing over and not giving its due to the fact that there are unique aesthetics that you can only get through printmaking you exactly. know and Exactly. And, yeah. And I think that sometimes one of the issues we have as printmakers is just being thought of as like, well, that's how you like just make a painting, but like a bunch of times, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but that's not it at all. <laughs> nah, not at all. And especially like, man, you've seen, I've seen some really creative stuff that people have done that like puts me to shame. Like it makes <laughs> make me think like I'm not doing enough of what I'm doing. But you know, that's the thing, you because you, all it is, especially like when you take like wood cuts, it's just wood, ink, and paper. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. And so every person, you have to take it and translate it your way, you know. And, you know, just from those simple three elements, you can make incredible things. I, I love it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so there's no other way to put it, but it, it's just something about like, you know, everybody has these same processes and they've been around for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, mm -hmm. like, like people been been making prints forever, you know, even printing the fabrics for, you know, for their, for their clothes. Like mm -hmm. that's printmaking when you think about it. Or like the, um, and, even like, like cave paintings, like people putting something on their hand, sticking oh, it on yeah. the wall. That's a transfer, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yo. So it's like, you know, taking the same thing that everybody else is dealing with. But now, like I said, I think I said it before, but you, you're putting yourself into it. Like this, you are filtering the world through you and out through whatever that process is. Like, yeah, it's, it's incredible. So it's sort of the, my next question, I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, I know it's always difficult as an artist because what you get is you, you know, you, you put a year more work into a show and then it's up. And then what happens though is, people come to the show and go, so what's next? You know, <laughs> Which, <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh, I feel sort of bad asking this, knowing that you've probably just had that experience. And you're like, what do you mean what's next? Like, and the, a year wasn't enough for you? <laughs> like, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm all about the journey. So the the very the minute I dropped off all those pieces, I was ready to do something else. Mm -hmm. Like I and, and I don't I don't know what it's gonna be. I'm I'm learning stone lithography now. Yeah. And so I'm gonna gonna try to get into it and and kind of experiment with that and see what I can come up with because it's completely different from how I draw how I see things and I love it. I, I really like how smooth and it is and these kind of textures and stuff um, that you can get out of it. So. So this year, I promised myself that I wasn't going to 
I probably won't be doing any more big shows like this mm-hmm. until my thesis show. My thesis show, and it's a three-year program, so I just finished my first year. So two two years from now will be the next time I do a big show like this. Because mm-hmm. I, cause I do just want to sit in it. Like, I want to sit in this grad school. I want to sit in these techniques. I want to sit in this time. And I want to see what else I could do. Because I like the statements that I'm making. I'm very proud of 400 and yeah. all the other stuff that I've made. And I just want to see what else I can add to whatever the conversation is. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm just gonna, gonna sit in these techniques and, and see what happened. And I don't, it's exciting, so exciting. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what I wanna make. And it kinda, I always get this feeling, I don't know if you get this feeling, but I get this feeling that after I finish something, I always look at it and it's like, man, that's pretty good. I will never make anything this good <laughs> right. for the rest of my life. But then, like, I, after I say that enough times, I kind of take it as a challenge. Like, you know, I can do better than that somehow. Yeah. Like, I'm going to do, you know, I can do something. And so I think that's where I am now. Like, I'm looking at it, and I'm so proud of it that I don't know if I'll ever make anything that good in my life. Mm. But I'm going to try. And so... I love that. That's that's where I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful attitude to have towards it because I know that feeling where you're just like, you sit back and you're like, well, I've peaked. Like, (laughs) that's it. That's it for me. Man, I'm going to be disappointing everyone from here on out. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I hope uh, hope they're not expecting this again. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, but hopefully, hopefully I got something else to say. Yeah. Well, I think this is a a great opportunity to just kind of like wrap up and we touched on it a little bit, but please can you remind everyone what's the best way for people to find you and follow you and listen to your podcast and buy your work and all of that stuff. Oh yeah, so so definitely check me out on IG. I'm always on IG at um at J Barber Studio. And listen to the podcast, Studio Noise Podcast. That's noise with a Z. Mm-hmm. And it's Studio Noise, N-O-I-Z-E, podcast on IG. Check out my website, www.jbarberstudio.com. And just kind of keep up with me. I'm, I'll be working on something. And I'm looking for collaborators. I'm always looking for collaborators. Because I'm going to start back up the Black Baby Project. Uh, and I'll be sending out more Black Babies to people. So if they want one... Uh, holler at me let me know yeah I can send you you can be a part of the project I love it that's so good well thank you so much for for joining me and being just open and amazing and yeah it's been a huge pleasure so thank you oh no thank you appreciate you yeah talk to you soon Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Paul DeRuvo, a non-binary printmaker working in Norfolk, Connecticut. Paul shares their incredible printmaking pedigree, being introduced to the Center for Contemporary Printmaking at age just 14 and falling madly in love with the process. We talk bodies and gender and silk aquatint and queer communities and Goya and collaborative printmaking and so much more. So... Do yourself a favor and make sure you tune in for that one. But this episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.